Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the engineers of the crack epidemic, <coughs> CIA, were never offered a deal to get out of the biz with impunity as long as they gave some money towards helping the individuals, communities, and healthcare systems broken in the wake of the addiction nightmare they unleashed. Nor were any other neighborhood drug dealers you can think of caught making money off drugs that, hey, they're also very sorry if anyone used irresponsibly. Somehow, that's not the most relevant context for corporate media talking about the bankruptcy ruling shielding the Sackler family, profiteers via Purdue Pharma, on the drug OxyContin, responsible for conservatively half a million deaths by overdose. We'll talk about that with Public Citizen Research Director Rick Claypool. Also on the show, you've seen the graphic maybe showing how the U.S. minimum wage has become unhinged from other indicators it should connect to, like productivity, the value of the goods and services that, after all, workers produce. But how did that disconnect happen? And how would a true understanding of that help us push through foggy reportage toward a better world? We'll get a breakdown of ideas elite media generally talk over with economist Dean Baker of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. That's coming up, and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. It's hard to think of a better illustration of the cynicism of justice under corporate capitalism than the September 1st ruling that absolves the billionaire owners of a drug company that spent years aggressively marketing a painkiller, misrepresenting its addictive properties, because that same company promises to throw some money at the devastating public health crisis that resulted. But that's where we're at with the approval of the bankruptcy organization plan from Purdue Pharma, controlled by the Sackler family, whose heavily pushed drug OxyContin has contributed materially to the devastation of lives and communities across the country. Judge Robert Drain of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in White Plains, New York, seemed to take no joy in the ruling. He called it bitter which should raise questions about how much practical anger should be directed at the particular venality of the Sackler family vis-a-vis the systemic problems they are able to exploit. We're joined now by Rick Claypool, a research director focused on corporate crime and wrongdoing at Public Citizen. He joins us now by phone from Rhode Island. Welcome to Counterspin, Rick Claypool. Thank you, Janine. Thanks for having me. Well, I have to start by saying there's no way we can cover all of the important ground here, the way the Sackler family played cultural currency, the PR employment of actual pain victims, 
the profit hiding. Books have been and will be written on this. But let's just stay in the moment. What does this bankruptcy ruling do? What's the impact? Well, it does uh, a number of things. While the main thrust of it is that it's ending Purdue Pharma as the for-profit company is pushing over the way that it had been and, you know, turns it into this public benefit company and is turning out over billions in funds towards helping essentially clean up the mess that Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family who owned and managed it for decades, existence has created. The bitter part of it is that it immunizes the uh, family members from future liability for any wrongdoing related to the business. So Purdue Pharma, the business is the reason they are billionaires in the first place. And they're going to walk away from this, billionaires. And so just if the standard of justice is accountability, deterrence of wrongdoing, just you know, equal treatment justice, right? I mean, right now there are 450,000 individuals on any given day serving time in the U.S., for nonviolent drug crimes, right? Some subset of that nearly half million people started out being addicted to OxyContin and things went downhill for them from there. The book was thrown at them. And, you know, here you have just the, you know, one of the wealthiest families in the world walking away with tarnished reputations and their billions. And um, it's just... um, it couldn't be a more unjust outcome. Well, and you aren't alone in thinking that. And my understanding from press coverage is that it's not over till it's over. And that states, for example, and maybe their reasons have to do with being saddled with a lot of health care costs of the opioid epidemic. But still, folks are trying to push back on this ruling? Do you see that as meaningful or what do you see might happen? Just my focus and what I spend my time thinking about is, is corporate crime uh, in the literal sense. So this is this is a civil settlement. What I'm keeping an eye out for is subsequent criminal accountability. Mm-hmm. Department of Justice made a civil settlement with the Sacklers and also settled its, its criminal charges, three felonies against Purdue Pharma itself back in November. But it explicitly says that that settlement does not release them from future criminal accountability. So we are calling on the Justice Department to pick up those threads of that investigation and to continue it. And if any crimes are found from the facts of the investigation, then members of the Sackler family should be indicted. I'd like to ask you finally, what would you like to see more of or less of in terms of media coverage? Because we're going to see media coverage. What would you like to see more or less of in terms of that coverage? Well, I want to go back to something that you said about the coverage of Purdue quickly and just that it is true that this case in particular has been covered 
better than most corporate crime cases have that I don't know if it's just the sheer egregiousness of it mm-hmm. or the actual family members. They seem indifferent and have no sort of remorse and sort of continuing to insist that they did nothing wrong and that there's nothing that would, they would have done differently. It's just absolutely ghoulish. It's also worth noting that this is a this is a private company, so the only individuals with anything at stake with the company were the the Sacklers themselves, right? So if we have, it is certainly the case that in corporate crime coverage, most of the time, when the company commits crimes, it's sort of reported as if it's bad news that they got caught on the business pages. Right. And the, the frame is far too often about how, um, how the company will fare, and this is, of course, we're not talking about like public companies where you know there are more investors, and also you know any members of the corporate media just have more at stake, and you know the fate in uh, in how those those companies' fates you know rise and fall. Here you see how a company where it's almost it's being treated that those connections you know aren't there. So I think that's interesting. I think it's still right that this still uh, obscures the the deeper systemic issues of of corporate crime and wrongdoing and how the capitalist greed fuels and can encourage this kind of recklessness and risk-taking that gambled with thousands of people's lives in a way that's just impossible to, to really comprehend. And if you you think about that and you think about how the outcome of this case, if they walk away from it, and at the same time, there are physicians who were over-prescribing opioids, right, you know, in a number of jurisdictions who they either have been indicted or were convicted for, you know, charges, including manslaughter when their patients died. It boggles the mind. The sense is that Somehow justice doesn't have the tools to address the folks who are higher up in the stream in terms of promoting something like OxyContin. Well, that's right. And it's also, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it in the coverage of the revolving door issues where some of the highest ranking prosecutors historically, you know, for one of the most powerful districts, right, is the Southern District of New York. And well, let's see who are some prosecutors who have worked for the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma, former prosecutors from the Southern District of New York, Rudy Giuliani and uh, Mary Jo White. (laughs) It's hard to think that there aren't many instances of those those prosecutors, when they're working for the Justice Department, when they're working for the public, do they see their corporate representatives that are on the other side? Are they adversaries or are they peers? And then what does that mean for how it ultimately gets worked out? Exactly. Well, just if there were a question that you would ask a reporter who was coming to this story on this bankruptcy filing, uh, a question that you would ask them to pursue, uh, what would that be? I would ask them to pursue the question of where are the threads dropped with the, the criminal investigation? with the Sackler family, where Justice Department prosecuted the company and made a settlement, civil settlement, with the the owners, made it clear that the settlement did not 
release them from criminal liability. But where, where is that? I've seen anecdotal mentions that people don't think that they will be criminally charged. Well, why? What happened there? Who made those decisions? Was it for lack of evidence? Was it because, as we have seen in multiple other instances in the Trump Justice Department, where higher-ups intervened in the cases of uh, career prosecutors to reduce charges against corporate offenders? We've been speaking with Rick Claypool, Research Director at Public Citizen. They're online at citizen.org. Thank you so much, Rick Claypool, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks, Janine. It was a pleasure. The media debate around the minimum wage has advanced. You don't hear so much about pin money, the notion that minimum wage earners are just looking for a little extra change and not a livelihood. You may even have heard suggestions that the U.S. minimum wage is out of whack, that it should be higher than it is. Still, as with reporting on most major economic premises and priorities, media discussions of the minimum wage mainly rattle around the same old tracks. They just don't go deep enough, don't ask the right questions of the right actors to actually explain why so many U.S. workers are struggling by on so little. Here to break it down for us is economist Dean Baker, co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, where he writes the blog Beat the Press, and author of, among other titles, Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. He joins us now by phone from Utah. Welcome back to Counterspin, Dean Baker. Thanks for having me on, Janine. If we could do some brief 101... What is the logic behind there being a link between the minimum wage and productivity? That reflects a a societal value, right? Yeah, it does. So we established the minimum wage, the national minimum wage, back in 1938 under part of the New Deal, the, the Fair Labor Standards Act. And I actually can't even tell you the exact figure was set. Of course, it sounds very low because we've seen a lot of inflation since then. But from 1938 to 1968, the minimum wage rose roughly in step with productivity growth. And just to be clear what that means to people, productivity growth is the amount of output we produce in an hour, goods and services we produce in an hour. And the minimum wage over that period rose pretty much in step with that. And to be clear how that was done, basically they had the minimum wage following the median wage and the median wage at that period, 38 to 68, followed productivity growth. So the minimum wage following the median wage meant that the minimum wage also followed productivity growth. And the implication of that is that even workers at the bottom, what we might think of as the least skilled, lowest paid workers, uh, not disparaging these people, just literally saying they're the lowest paid workers, people work, uh, you know, busing dishes in restaurants or cleaning toilets in, in, you know, hotels or businesses. Those people shared in the gains in the economy. So the idea was that even those at the very bottom, they got richer when the economy as a whole got richer. 
Well, now we come to the chart folks may have seen, and there's a nifty version in your recent Beat the Press post on this, of the minimum wage over time coming detached from productivity growth. I'm going to ask you to explain that delinking and what relinking those things would entail. But first of all, you have a nice moment in your recent piece where you talk about a $26 an hour, which is what it would be had it kept pace. You you talk about what a minimum wage of $26 an hour would look like. You spend a minute visioning that. I wonder if you could do that for us. Yeah, I, I just did the calculation, and that's easy one to do, just, you know, taking minimum wage from its peak value in uh, 68 and just carrying through what it would be if, if it rose in step with productivity and you get 26 an hour. It's a hair less, but it, trivially so. So you just go, okay, what does the world look like? Imagine we had done that. So someone's working a 40-hour week, 50, uh, 50 weeks a year. That comes to, to, to $52,000 a year. So imagine the lowest paid worker, you know, again, the people who are busing dishes in restaurants, cleaning toilets, that they made 52000 a year. I mean, it's just, to my mind, just uh, almost mind-blowing in terms of, you know, how different the world would look. So say a uh, single mother is raising two kids. Well, 52000 a year, that's well over twice the poverty line. I'm not going to say that person's hugely rich or anything. I'm, you know, of course not. But that's a comfortable middle-class existence. And then I say, well, suppose you have two earners. Let's say we have two earners, you know, very bottom of the pay scale. And let's say, you know, even at the bottom, there's some opportunities for pay raises, promotions. So say 15, 20 years into their working career, people in their mid-30s, 40. At that point, let's say that their pay is 20% higher. That's pretty modest. Uh, so they have 20% above the minimum wage. That would be over 60000 a year. So if you had two earners, they'd have 120000 a year as their income. This would be people at the bottom end. And, you know, it's just sort of an interesting thought. What a different country we would have if the lowest paid people, a two-earner couple, was still pocketing 120000 a year. And, of course, the politics would change because people would be able to imagine a future for themselves and their children, and they wouldn't feel shackled by debt. And, uh, and You know, again, I just wrote down the number. I said, well, let's think that through for a moment. And, you know, it almost sounds farcical, but you go, no, we were doing that until 1968. And it's not that, you know, we had all the communists running the country in, you know, the 40s, 50s, Dwight D. Eisenhower was president for eight of those years. Exactly. Uh, you know, so, so it wasn't as though we were run, being run by crazy radicals in that period, but that's what we were doing at the time. The minimum wage, those workers at the bottom were seeing their living standards rise in step with the growth in the economy. Well, starting from now, and this is important, if we were simply and solely to raise the minimum wage, some bad things would happen. Most media debate just stops there, and that's the problem with most media debate. You explain why we can't just do a higher minimum wage. We have to also change a number of other things, and that gets at how the wage got out of sync with productivity in the first place. Yeah, so just to be clear, there are ongoing debates on raising the minimum wage by more modest amounts. You know, we, many people set the target of 15 an hour for 226, and much research shows that we don't have to worry about a lot of job loss at that. So 
I don't want to scare people away from that, but I'm talking about a considerably higher number, obviously. I'm talking about $26 an hour today, 2021. So that's considerably more than, say, $15 an hour five years from now. But in any case, so suppose we want to do 26 an hour. Well, that would create a lot of unemployment, a lot of problems in the economy because we've structured it to redistribute so much income upwards. And what I always start with here are patent and copyright monopolies just because this is so incredibly important. There's so much money at stake, and it's also literally never discussed. So the fact that people are getting incredibly rich over the uh, Moderna vaccine you know, or the other vaccines and treatments being produced for treating the coronavirus, that's because we gave them patent monopolies. And we didn't have to do that. Um, in the case of Moderna, we basically paid for the research. So why on earth the government would give them a patent monopoly and arrest their competition, hard to understand. But that's the sort of thing redistributes a huge amount of income from the rest of us to the shareholders at Moderna and obviously the higher paid, the top executives, and I'm sure some of their top scientists are doing very well from this. So that's a really big part of this story. Patent and copyright monopolies, my calculation, redistribute on the order of more than a trillion dollars, about 5% of GDP or half of all corporate profits um, upward. So I would certainly look to have much weaker and shorter patent and copyright monopolies. We have a corrupt corporate governance structure. Basically, CEOs write their own paycheck. And as a result of that, we've seen an explosion of pay at the top of the corporate ladder. So CEOs now get two to 300 times the pay of a typical worker. If we go back to the 60s, it would have been around 20, maybe 25 times the pay of a typical worker. So you might see a CEO, if we, we had the same standard in place, the CEO at a major company, instead of getting $20 million a year, might get $2 million a year. And I always raise this point. People go, well, yeah, that's bad, but CEOs is only, you know, 500 of the 500 large companies. It's not just the CEO. If the CEO is getting $20 million, the CFO, chief financial officers, probably getting 12, 13, 14 million. There's probably a few other top executives in the C-suite also getting somewhere near 10 million. And then the third tier is probably getting two or 3 million also. Mm-hmm. If you had the CEO getting 2 million, then you'd see corresponding reductions in the pay of the other people at the top. And that has a huge impact on pay scales throughout the economy. So if we had corporate governance structure that was similar to what we had 50, 60 years ago, we'd see CEO pay that was more in line with what we had in those decades. The financial sector, we basically structured our financial sector to rake off enormous amounts of money from the rest of the economy. And again, it's not a story that they're contributing. If you look at the hedge fund, I was going to say guys, almost all of them are guys, but whatever hedge fund mm-hmm. people that often have pay in the hundreds of millions, even billions of a year, they're not contributing to the economy. And again, I'm open to that argument. If you could show me, oh, here's all these great companies wouldn't have gotten the capital they need, but these billion hedge fund people were able to recognize them. Well, that's the story. You could tell that, except there's no evidence to support that story. So we structured our our financial sector in a way that allows for enormous fortunes to be made, again, at the expense of the rest of the economy. So those are the three I would highlight. I mean, give you other examples, but the basic point is we structured our economy in ways to redistribute a massive amount of income upward 
And if we don't address that restructuring, if we don't basically reverse what we've done over the last four or five decades, we can't have a world where people earning the minimum wage get 26 an hour. So we got to focus on the ways we've misstructured the economy so that people at the bottom and, in fact, people at the middle could live decent, secure lifestyles. Some pundits still use the image of the burger flipper as a kind of emblem of someone who, you know, no moral judgment, but they just don't contribute enough to productivity to merit a, you know, a higher wage. It sounds like there really are better emblems um, for that, you know. But it's a bitter pill that, for example, CEO pay is stratospheric, that our tax and regulatory structure wildly rewards a handful of people who contribute little or nothing to the productive economy, and that that happens because the people who could change it just have no incentive to. I think people really want there to be a better reason than that. And by not seriously engaging that reason, I think corporate media lead us to believe that, you know, there is really a real dry-eyed reason things have to be this way. We just don't understand it. I think that's very much right. And trying to get, you know, you've been doing this as long as me, trying to get to the core, what is the problem here? Why is this? I mean, it's not just, I know many reporters, I don't think they're, they aren't on the take, but it's, it literally doesn't occur to them. So the idea that, oh, we did not have to give Moderna a patent monopoly. Here we are in this worldwide pandemic crisis. We could have just said, we paid you for the research. We're not also going to give you a monopoly. And if it's not worth your while to do the research for the money, then we'll find someone else who will do the research for the money. But that's literally not something they think about. And we first have to start talking about those things if we hope to change them. Right. Well, we'll start here. We've been speaking with Dean Baker. You can find his blog, Beat the Press, on the website of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. That's net. Thank you so much, Dean Baker, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks a lot for having me on. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website's also the place to sign up for FAIR's Action Alert Network or to subscribe to our newsletter, Extra. The show's been engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.